The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. This evening I want to address this theme, the gospel net in the sea of faith. The gospel net in the sea of faith. Jesus likened sharing the gospel to fishing. I don't know whether you fish, I don't know whether you've spent much time in a boat, rod fishing, or from the shore, or done any sea fishing, but Jesus likened the gospel to fishing. How are we to let down the gospel net in the sea of faith that confronts us in the world today? That is my theme that I want to address with you this evening. If you have a Bible with you and it's handy, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. I want to read a few verses from Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 12. Matthew chapter 4, I'm reading verse 12 to 25. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. That it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. I don't know whether last year... You were interested, as I was, to see the popularity, but also the controversy that surrounded the release of the film, The Passion. I don't know what you made of that film, whether you even went to see it, whether you could cope with it. But nonetheless, it interested me, because as soon as something like this happens, which happens pretty much every year, something along this line in our culture, everybody is commenting about it. The journalists, the newspapers, the news reporters, our periodicals, and so on and so forth. And... It is as true today as ever before that the message concerning Christ, even in tolerant Canada, is divisive. It divides people. Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Did he mean a military sword? No, he did not. He meant that the message would divide father from son, mother from daughter, brother from sister. And when we see things come up in the discussions around even ethics today, 
discussions going on on Parliament Hill at this very moment, we recognize and see immediately that there is no such thing as neutrality in the world in which we live. Nobody is neutral with respect to God and with respect to the gospel. Jesus made this astonishing claim, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That statement is either true or false. It can't be both. If we believe that statement to be true, of course, we are not neutral. We are believers. If we believe that statement to be false, we are not neutral. If we do not live in the light of the truth of that statement, we are not neutral. Our culture labors under the myth of neutrality. That our secular education system, the word secular comes from the Latin word secular, meaning this worldly. Labors under the false notion in our society that there is a neutral body of information and facts out there in the world. And Christians are hopelessly biased in the way that they approach reality. Everybody else is essentially objective as they stand back and look at the information, look at the cold, hard facts as it were in the cool light of day, not challenged, not uh, dominated by religious dogmatism. But Jesus clearly teaches us and has shown so clearly in our popular culture that this is a total myth. We're living in a culture in Canada today which is increasingly secular totalitarian in its attitude. And it is a challenge. Why are the claims of the Christian faith so controversial? Why can you comment on almost any subject today, particularly in the ethical realm, and be challenged so vigorously, even aggressively, by those in our culture. And the reason is that our society on the whole has rejected the word of God. Despite the wonderful heritage that this great nation of Canada has, it has on the whole rejected the word of God and replaced it with the word of man. There are two choices in life, theonomy and autonomy, self-law or the revelation and law of God. One of the things then we face in our society is the rejection of the word of God. And despite all of our culture's claims to rise above the particular commitments or religious commitments in public life, people cannot help being captivated by the person of Jesus. They either oppose him with hostility or we worship him. This is the reality of the world in which we live. I begin in this fashion because I want to say to you, and I've read the text that I have, because I want to start this evening by making clear that this, the same way in which Jesus spoke into our confused culture, the confused culture of first century Palestine, he brings the same message into the confused culture of Canada today and of the world today. The message hasn't changed, it hasn't altered, unless you're privy to some revelation I have not encountered the same net that Jesus cast in first century Palestine must be cast by us again in 21st century Canada. The sea of faith and the waves of despair, I think, are the first thing we encounter in this passage in Matthew. He is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And in his reference to the sea here, this image in scripture, the image of the sea in the Bible has very negative overtones. For most of us, the sea has very positive overtones because it conjures up images of the beach and of holidays in sun, sea, and sand. Well, in Scripture, it wasn't seen as a, an image that conjured up views of uh, 
semi-paradise locations for a holiday, but rather foreboding. And the Bible clearly tells us here that to begin his ministry in fulfilling prophecy, Jesus begins in Capernaum by the Sea of Chinnereth, which is about 20 miles east of Ptolemy, a port on the Great Sea. Now, you probably never, like me, <clears throat> refer to your colorful maps in the back of your Bible, but if you did, you'd see the geography there of early Palestine. This part of northern Palestine where Jesus began his ministry was where the Israelites were first to reject God and were dominated by heathen rule and oppressed by heathen rule. And so it was called the Galilee of the nations. The Galilee of the nations. Here in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, these Gentile areas, Gentiles were mixed with Jews. Truth was mixed with error. Religions, different belief systems and superstitions coalesce together. That's why, if you, as you recall, when one of the disciples goes to get his brother, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He said that because he's saying, can anything good come out of this Galilee of the Gentiles where truth is mixed with error in this pluralistic context in northern Palestine, a place where people have rejected God. The sea there represented not only invasion but confusion, judgment, turmoil, despair, foreboding. And in this description, of course, the prophet Isaiah is not just talking about northern Palestine. He's describing the condition of the entire world. Have we defined the, redefined the condition of the world in which we live? Is it no longer lost? Is it no longer in darkness? Is it no longer in need of redemption and salvation? Jesus comes to the dark north, this example of ignorance, superstition, moral corruption with all these nations coalescing together where there was unbelief and even fanaticism. Terrorists of an early Palestinian sort there in northern Palestine where many of the Jewish zealots would wait, lie in wait for Roman garrisons that were passing by, Simon the Zealot being one of them an attack of the occupying force. The context to which Matthew refers is very much like our own, a sea of faith, a sea of confusion, where unbelief and superstition and indifference even coalesce alongside violent fanaticism. Jesus was born into an era of peculiar darkness and despair. So often we look at the New Testament and we think, well, it was so easy for those apostles. The context was so different. If only it were like that. It would be so much easier for us in Canada. No, no. The context where the pagan Romans had conquered Jesus' homeland 60 years before he was born, the last in a long line of pagan lands to do so. Matthew then says, those who have sat in this darkness, quoting the prophet, have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. The light of the world had come. I'm not going to waste any of your time this evening trying to draw any further comparisons to the Canadian situation. If you've got your eyes open and if you're listening, you'll recognize that this is the kind of context into which We've, we are called to bring the gospel. The people who were sat in darkness, languishing in darkness, have seen this great light. Ephesians 5.14, Paul says, Awake, you who sleep, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. 
What was the message then that into this context Jesus brought? How did he begin his ministry? How did our Savior begin his ministry in this context like our own? Well, it was a call to people to awaken from lethargy and indifference and carelessness and apathy. Do we read here in Matthew? Tolerate all for the elastic principle of love will unite all contradictory claims in the melting pot of humanistic pluralism. After all, God just wants you to be happy. Is that how Jesus began his ministry? Why? According to my Bible, he begins slightly differently. He says, repent, metanous, change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and it's approaching like a chariot. Get on or get run over. Christ was the light of the world. He is the light of the world. Grace and truth came together. Truth without grace is very unpalatable. Grace without truth is meaningless. Christ comes and he reveals the very character and nature of God and identifies himself as God the Son, bringing a message on the authority of God alone. I reminded university students earlier this week, Christian students in in some of my teaching on apologetics, that Christ never appealed to anybody beyond himself, beyond the Godhead, to justify his message. You don't find Jesus saying, listen to me and Socrates will back me up on this. And I tell you the truth and check, uh, check Cicero and he'll confirm what I'm saying. He says instead a self-authenticating word, I am the truth. Before Abraham existed, I am. Thus Jesus could read from the prophet Isaiah with respect to himself, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. When the world, Paul says, through its wisdom, through philosophy, the philosophia, the love of wisdom, did not know God, it pleased God to save men and women by the message preached. The net that was cast by Jesus himself was the one of repentance, believing the gospel. Repent and believe. That's how Jesus begins. And at the very beginning of his ministry, he seeks other fishermen another fisherwomen, fisher persons to be properly Canadian. Matthew tells us how he goes on to find them. He finds two fishermen casting their nets and two fishermen mending their nets. Now if it was you or I, would you or I have gone down to the shore to find uneducated, unskilled men and women and called them into your service if you were the son of God? no education, no formal education, no formal training, and called upon them to be your co-workers. Well, Jesus did it, of course, to make foolish the wisdom of the world. Many of us feel perhaps that we are ill-equipped, not smart enough, that we are dealing with a culture that's too educated, too cynical, too skeptical, too hostile for you to engage in sharing and defending the faith. Perhaps you think that about those in your sphere of influence, but these men and women whom God called, these relatively ignorant men, God raises up to speak to presidents, princes, prime ministers, prelates. He takes the things that are not, the ones that are not, and calls them as though they are. 
Now, one could over-apply this fishing image, and I'm in danger of doing so, but let me just uh, try and draw an analogy here. Jesus first calls them to follow him, and co-joined to that call is the call to fish for people. And at that call, their response is immediate, and it's absolute. It's not, well, I need, really need to finish off the, this uh, season's business, Lord, and then I'll come along and I'll join you in this quest. Their response is immediate, and it is absolute. To follow, to accept the call to follow Christ, because these calls are cojoined, if you have accepted as a believer the call to follow Christ, you have by definition accepted the call to be a fisher of men and women. It is not an optional extra. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. One of the great fathers of the church said, Christ's illusion to fishing is apt in dealing with the preaching of the gospel for men drift and float about the world as in a vast and troubled sea and they are brought in by the gospel. So what I want to affirm tonight first of all is that to be a follower of Christ means to be a fisher of men and women. Yet many of us believe that we are not one of the ones called to explain and defend the faith. And there are a whole number of reasons why we, we might try and offer for it. But almost as though Jesus is trying to reinforce this, a few verses later, he says to the disciples, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lamp stand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If you are a Christian here tonight, it's for one reason only. That somebody, somehow, at some point, cared enough to let the gospel net down around you. Was it one of your parents? Was it a friend? Was it a stranger in the street? Was it a pastor at the church? Was it some preacher you heard? Was it in the literature of a book that you read by a person? You are only here today as a believer because somebody cared enough about the call of God and the call to fish for men and women that they let the gospel net down around you and that's why you're here. We're only asked to do the same. We're asked to do the same that has been done for us. Jesus said, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon sand. Some of you are looking a little bit uh, as though you're dropping off, so let's just do an exercise. I want you to click your fingers with me in rhythm if you can, like this. Okay, keep clicking. That's good. Now, in heaven, as believers, keep clicking, there's two things that we won't be able to do. We won't be able to sin. Thank the Lord for that. And we won't be able to evangelize. There's two obvious things we won't be able to do. Now, God has obviously not put you on earth to sin. He didn't bring you into this world to sin, did he? 
But one of the reasons and tasks he has given you is to evangelize. Stop clicking. Every time you clicked your fingers, four people died in the world. Four people. Sobering thought, isn't it? We have been put here and given a task for a reason. Peter, the apostle, was one of those called who took the task seriously. And in 1 Peter 3.15, he says this. A fisherman commissioning the church, he said this. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, that means set him apart, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. That word defense there in 1 Peter 3.15 is the Greek word apologia, from which we derive the term apologetics. Always be ready, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Paul repeatedly uses the phrase. The book of Acts uses the term apologia, Acts 22 verse 1. And it means to justify the Christian view of life in the face of all kinds of variant worldviews that oppose the Christian message. In the last few months, I've had the privilege of visiting numerous uh, universities. And one of them was in Pakistan, in Lahore City. And there I had the privilege of addressing a large group, hundreds of students from other faiths at Foreman University in Lahore. The first Christian lecture there in 30 years. 30 years. For one reason, that I am committed to the call to fish for people and to offer a defense. In the same way that a few weeks ago I was here in Winnipeg and I got back from a meeting and I was very tired. I was with my colleague, exhausted through a long day of speaking. I said, let's go and use the hotel leisure facilities. Let's go and get in the hot tub. And you know about the needs for hot tubs in this climate. So we went into the, uh, to the leisure area and I noticed somebody was already in the tub. I thought, oh no, I really don't want to speak to any more strangers today. I'm tired, I don't want to have to interact in this way. And when you've got a vocation like mine as a Christian apologist, and when people are introducing themselves to you, of course, the first topic of conversation is, who are you and what do you do and what are you doing here? So I got into the tub with my colleague and this gentleman, and he said, who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing here? <laughs> so I told him. And people either leave the pool or they stay in and uh, engage in a meaningful conversation and interaction with you about the faith. And this man did. He said, uh, I'm a sham Christian. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I was baptized as a child and I've got my kids done just in case, but I don't really know what it means. He says, I've been to church, but I can't understand what's going on. This man was a veterinarian, a highly educated man. He didn't have a clue about the Christian worldview. He didn't understand what Christianity was. I spent an hour explaining it to him. I got out, I looked like a wrinkled fry. From Lahore to the hot tubs of Winnipeg, it's giving a defense and offering a reason for the hope that is in us. What situation are you in? Are you sweeping the road? I don't know. Are you a teacher? Are you a nurse? 
God has given you a sphere of influence in which you can offer a reason for the hope that is in you in a lost and hurting world. The foundation, the rock of which Christ speaks that we are to build upon is his word. And it's in the confidence of his word, the Christ of scripture, that we build a foundation and we give our reason and upon which we build our defense of the Christian message. Many people think that it requires a PhD in analytical philosophy to give a reason for the hope that we have. That apologetics is somehow something that's limited to the academy, to the elite, to those who want to use big words and confuse people about what the gospel really means. Well, that's not what apologetics is about at all. It's about clearing away the confusion. And the task was given to you and to me, the persecuted church, by an uneducated fisherman. Jesus did not go to Athens and tip out the Areopagus and all the best and the brightest in Greece and call them to do this work. Although some of those he did call later. He calls you and he calls me. The fishing is not to be left to the experts, to the pastor. The fishing is for us. Peter helps us. He says, first, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. This includes the intellectual area, something that I reiterate and reiterate and reiterate to students again and again and again. The Lordship of Christ doesn't extend merely over your ethical life, but over your intellectual life as well. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Christ must be Lord in our minds if we are to give a reason and to give a defense in the culture in which we live. Second, Peter says, we must be ready. That word there means be fit. When I first came to Canada, 18 months ago, I thought I need to get into my community, get to know people. How can I do that? I thought I'll join a local soccer team, show these Canadians how the game is played. (laughs) And kill two birds with one stone and get fit at the same time because I was not feeling as fit as I used to be. I know I'm built like a sparrow, but that doesn't mean that the heart is in good condition. And so I thought I'll join the soccer league, get to know some of these local guys, have an opportunity to do some fishing while I'm playing soccer. And so that's what I did. I joined this soccer league, but I would neglected to, to uh, take in consideration the fact that I hadn't played competitive soccer for six years. And believe it or not, I have passed the age of 30. I know you're all thinking how young and attractive that young man is, and he can't possibly be uh, 30. But I am. I'm over 30 years old, and I ran onto the field as I was 21. And something has happened in your body by the time you reach 30, and somehow the elasticity has begun to sort of go from the muscles and the bone, not quite as it used to be, and it takes more work to get back to the fitness level. And those of you who are over 40 will know that there's an even diff- bigger challenge there, but we won't go into that. <laughs> and I ran out onto the field, I took my first corner, I pulled, or I strained my quad, my left quad. I thought, this isn't good. <laughs> Many hot baths, several... Uh, Maximum strength ibuprofens and a few massages later, and five or six games later, I felt match fit. Scored a whole stack of goals, tremendous season. But the issue was this. I had to get fit, I had to get ready, because unless I improved my fitness, I wasn't ready for the match. Peter says exactly the same thing here. He says, be ready, be fit, is what the Greek means. Be ready to give a reason for anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that you have. We are flabby Christians. We're not loving God with our minds so that we're ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. We're 
The danger is we are couch potato Christians playing Nintendo football and not out there on the field. I feel sorry for these kids who play all these computer games these days, you know. They don't know what the grass smells like and the mud smells like between your fingernails and when you're caked in it. What the soil feels like underfoot when you play the real thing. To be satisfied, sat in front of a screen going... That's not soccer. You have to get out there. And you have to get fit and be ready. And this is what Peter is saying to us. He says, take the Lordship of Christ seriously. Thirdly, very quickly, as we are ready and prepared to fish, what is the habit and habitats of our catch? It's not just enough to be there with your net and be ready and prepared to fish, but where is the catch? Many fish, I'm told, particularly in the Mediterranean, don't like the light of day. That's why fishermen often did their fishing during the night. And you read in the New Testament how they'd been out all night and caught nothing. Then along comes this chippy, this carpenter Jesus, and tells a a seasoned fisherman to stick his net down on the other side. He must have thought the man's mad. The fish are hiding. It's the daytime. Well, Scripture says that actually Jesus tells us men and women love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And they do hide from the light. They hide from the light of day. Deep down, however, people find it impossible to suppress the recognition that they are creatures of God that they belong to God, that they're made in God's image, even though they suppress that reality. You can go to any of the philosophers and read their work, and you still find this image and this incredible difficulty they all have in thinking of themselves not as creatures, but we are creatures. We live in this world. You see, the, the problem that confronts every philosopher, no matter how radical he may be, is that he did not create the universe and he did not create himself. He is not self-sustaining, self-attesting, self-explanatory, self-created. He is a creature. And everybody that we speak to is made in God's image and is within the reach of God. And yet, As Paul writes, they are suppressing the truth. He says in Ephesians 4, 17 to 19, the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus." The diagnosis isn't a pretty one. Maybe we feel that we are more accurate, that we can perhaps have a better interpretation than the inspired Apostle Paul. That he was being too harsh, he was going too far, he was being a little bit non-Canadian there. A bit intolerant. But Paul teaches that this is the reality. Now we want to bring people to the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit and the whole situation in apologetics, in giving a defense of our faith in this world and sphere of influence in which we find ourselves is essentially simple. God requires that men and women love God with mind, heart, soul, and strength and their neighbor as they love themselves. They're required to make God their ultimate criteria for what is true, to recognize that they are not self-created, but they are dependent, that they are creatures of God, 
that they belong to God, that their highest happiness can only be found in God. But Paul tells us and explains to us in the New Testament that sin has blinded and skewed people's knowledge and there is alienation from God. And so we can pray two kinds of prayers as people. We can pray the Lord's prayer of submission or we can pray man's prayer of rebellion which goes something like this. Our brethren who art on earth, hallowed be our name. Our kingdom come, our will be done on earth for there is no heaven. We must get this day our daily bread. We neither forgive nor are forgiven. We fear not temptation, for we deliver ourselves from evil. For ours is the kingdom and the power, and there is no glory and no forever. Amen. Two possible prayers that we can pray. In like manner, though the habitat and habits of the catch varies, the common denominator is ignoring distorting and suppressing the truth. You see, human beings, they want to deny the creator-creature relationship. Either man is God or God is like man. That's what every thinker, every philosopher has ever wanted outside of the Christian church. Either man is God or at the very least any God that there will be permitted into this universe by the mind of man must be like man and serve him. We assert our autonomy, our our independence from God. The humanist says, man is the measure of all things. We determine right from wrong, what is true from what is false. That was the temptation in the garden of God. Has God said? Oh, you will not surely die, but you will be as gods, knowing good from evil. The temptation is still the same. This leads to the total circular futility of all human thinking outside of God. I wish I had time this evening to argue that through with you and explain how that works in the context of the Christian worldview. I don't. But I can give you one illustration. Paul calls them the principles of this world. Imagine for a moment you awaken on a raft, a raft in the middle of the ocean. This is the picture of man without God trying to know things, okay? There's a big word for this in philosophy. It's called epistemology. How do you know what you know? And how do you know that you can trust what you think you know? A man wakes up aboard a raft. Imagine that's you. You're on this raft. You find that you can reason about the world around you. But on the raft, all around you is the ocean. Nothing else can you see at dusk but the rising and the falling of the water. The first thing you do if you're on a raft, of course, is look for land. Why? Because you need a point of reference. Outside of yourself so that you can tell where you are, where you've traveled from, where you're going to, so on and so forth. If it was dusk and you're on this ocean, no land in sight anywhere, and you looked into the night sky, what would you see? Well, you would see with no light pollution from Winnipeg, the stars. You know, ancient mariners used to navigate their way before global positioning satellite via the stars. Star charts. Why? Because the stars provide for the mariner an external, transcendent point of reference outside of yourself so that you know in relation to where you are, something outside of yourself is a fixed point, a fixed referent. But man without God says, I'm going to ignore the revelation in the heavens. I'm going to make myself the point of reference. I am the final criteria for truth. I will measure where I am on the basis of myself. So off you drift on your raft. 
Now, as a major problem for the smart ones among you, you know what it is. The point of reference is now synonymous with the raft. The point of reference moves wherever the raft moves. So you cannot know where you've been, where you've come from, where you're going, how fast you've traveled, or in what direction. There is no point of reference. That would be like sailing out of the dock or the harbor and have the harbor move out with you. Would you know you'd left the harbor at all? That's why when you're out walking somewhere in Alberta, perhaps, you look for a landmark, a point of reference. Without God, human beings have lost their point of reference. That's why the Bible describes them as lost and without hope and without God in the world. You can talk about it morally, philosophically. Man is without a fixed point of reference in the world today. And the cyclical skepticism and circular thought of human beings in the era of philosophy is proof enough of it. Rebellion against God. But the Christian position is very different. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. You see, it's only God who knows this universe exhaustively. Do you have all the facts at your disposal? You know, when um, <clears throat> with my two little girls, my eldest one, she's coming up for three years old, so she is always talking. She's always asking questions. My daughter loves asking questions. All of us do. My youngest brother, when we were growing up, I always remember finding him so comical as he would constantly plague me with questions that I couldn't possibly answer. You know what I say with my daughter? She says, Daddy, why? I say, well, sweetheart, because, you know, this happened. And then she says, but why? Well, I say, well, because that's just the way things are. But why, Daddy? What do you have to say when a child keeps asking you a question like that? Because I said so. <laughs> you have to get back to that point, don't you? You get back to the point of authority. You get back to that point where you have to say, I can't explain anymore because I don't even have the answer. You have to accept it because I said so. Which human being in the world today can say about knowledge, about God, about morality, because I said so? Oprah? <laughs> Jerry Springer? Britney Spears? Do they have the facts at their disposal? Do they create the universe, sustain the universe? Are they self-attesting, self-explanatory, self-sustaining? No, no. But one man did come and say, because I said so. And his name was Jesus. He spoke on his own authority. See, the problem of man without God is he has no point of reference. He has his because I said so is located in some human being and the ever-shifting and changing opinions of human beings. But the Bible provides for us our starting point is very different. Solomon writes... The Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. When I was growing up, one of the verses that my dad referred me back to most, Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to even reach rung one on the road to wisdom, it starts with reverence for God. It's only for God that all the facts are available. 
He knows this world exhaustively, therefore he is the only teacher of men and women. That's why we need revelation. That's why we need an infallible word from God, otherwise we couldn't know anything. Lastly then, the tears of compromise and mending our nets. And I close with this. There are a couple of sub-points, so don't get too excited. I said I'll close with this point and then there'll be a couple of addendums, okay? (laughs) Two of the disciples that Jesus called, James and John, were with their father, mending their nets because they were fishermen. You see, fishermen don't just do fishing, they mend their nets because Christians are called to be fishers of men But effective fishing presupposes a sound net. The gospel net in the sea of faith. Effective fishing presupposes that you have a net that is sound and is not full of holes. Because when you drop a holy net into the water and you pull it up, the fish have escaped through all the gaps. You ever feel like you're dropping the net down and you pull it up and there's nothing there but an old boot? Or even a young one? We have to be vigilant like the fishermen in terms of mending our net. And the problem, I believe, in much of the Western church is that our net is terribly compromised. It's broken. The net of the gospel has been compromised because the word of God has been compromised, its authority, sufficiency, and integrity. We think the way to win my generation and the younger generation is to filter out the unpopular aspects, to import foreign ideas in philosophy and science and impose it onto the scripture and reinterpret it in such a way that it won't offend anybody. That's not the kind of gospel that my generation is going to respond to. A broken net doesn't bring anybody in When we do that to the word of God and compromise God's word, we make it indefensible gibberish. And on whose authority do we impose secular, philosophical, scientific, historical paradigms onto the word of God? When we meddle with it, instead of sitting under the word of God to be taught, we sit in judgment of it because of the mind, autonomous reasoning of a human being. He says, oh, this is no longer acceptable, that's no longer acceptable. You know, most movements in liberalism in the church began with evangelical Christians trying to make their gospel more palatable and appropriate to their generation. And we have been bequeathed in my generation a compromised net in the Western church. We wonder why when we send our kids off to university, they never come back to the church. That's where we're losing them. Off they go to college. University, do they come back? They've never learnt. They've not a proper grasp of the Christian worldview. They've not learned to defend it because the net is so compromised. And sometimes as a church, we let down the net and we think we're doing evangelism. We haven't done evangelism at all. This is part of the challenge. As we look at the times of revival in the church and awakening, we see they were times of reformation and devotion to Christ and to his word in an uncompromising fashion. Does uncompromising mean a lack of grace? No. I don't mean we offend people for all the wrong reasons because we don't know when to speak, don't know when to keep silent, don't know how to share with people. Grace and truth go hand in hand. 
But the way to win our generation in this culture is not to compromise the word of God at any point. I stand at Western universities right across Europe and North America and in Asia, and the word of God has never failed me a single time. I don't have to compromise or dispense with a single chapter of God's word. Either God has spoken an infallible word to be trusted and believed, or he hasn't. Either God is sovereign or man is sovereign. We have to make our choice. Augustine said this, if you believe what you like in the Bible and reject what you like, it is not the Bible you believe, but yourself. Who do you believe? Who is your authority? Who is your because I said so? In this generation, in this culture, we have to mend the net. If the net is torn, we will not succeed. We cannot be, as we say in England, I can't remember what you call it here, pick and mix Christians. Take a bit of that and a bit of this, and you know the boiled sweets in the supermarket? I'll have a bit of this and I'll have a bit of that, but I don't like that and I don't like this bit. That's the kind of generation we're living in. And we wonder why. We're facing the challenges we do. When Jesus addressed the Pharisees, many people think that the sin of the Pharisees was their excessive devotion to the word of God, Torah. Or their excessive prayers, not at all. Jesus says this in Matthew 22, 29, in response to their trick questions. He says, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Mistakes with Christians as with non-believers, are because we do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. If we will return to the word of God and to the Holy Spirit as our source of power, we can see, I am convinced, a recovery in our time. And Mission Fest can be year on year a celebration of what God is doing right across Canada. The biblical paradigm of this book, which I defend from university to university, across this country and others, is paradise lost to paradise regained. And I believe everything in between. Either this world is the creation of an absolute, self-contained, self-explanatory, triune God who called this universe into existence and created us in his image and we fell from grace in the garden of God and the world was cursed and we're alienated from God and Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head, begins a line of prophecy throughout the Old Testament culminating in Malachi, 400 years gap, the genealogy of Christ going all the way back to Abraham prophesied by Isaiah the prophet, the virgin shall conceive and she will give birth to a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And Luke's gospel, the genealogy in Luke chapter three goes all the way back to Adam, the first man. If you don't believe the Bible, please tell me at which point the genealogy of Christ becomes fictitious. The first man, Adam became a living soul. The second Adam, Christ, is a life-giving spirit. And they are juxtaposed in God's word. I haven't time to discuss the areas of compromise. A number come to my mind. But we know what they are. Young people at at the universities here know what they are. You only need to read the paper to find out what they are. Our net is full of holes. 
Let's not abandon the so-called tougher elements, the things which make the very heart of the gospel. You know, if you drop a frog into a boiling pan of water, it will leap straight out. If you put a frog in cold water, I've not experimentally tested this, and heat it up slowly, it'll boil to death because it doesn't notice the change of temperature. The church is cooking in the secular context. And we need to jump out. I don't mean jump out of the world, we can't do that. We're in the world, but we're not of it. But we need to abandon the world's assumptions and get back to the word of God. Mend our nets, because we are a peculiar people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Peculiar, not the same. Peculiar, strange, aliens in the world. We're different, and that's why people will ask you if Christ is Lord in your life, body, mind, soul, spirit, they will ask you a reason for the hope that is in you. You don't need to cram it down their throat, accost them in the street, shove a leaflet up their nose. They will ask you a reason for the hope that is in you. Because you're so transformed. Let us then take seriously the call of Christ that the Lord Jesus may say to us, as we live in obedience, friend, let down your net upon the other side. And he may give you a catch so big you need to call half the neighborhood to help you bring it in. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me let them bring me to your holy hill, to your tabernacle, O God. David, Psalm 43, verse 3. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.